I'm Lindsay Barra, and welcome to Food of the Gods, a podcast that explores how elite athletes eat and train to fuel performance. In these gurus editions, we'll feature strength and conditioning coaches, nutritionists, recovery scientists, and other performance specialists who help athletes to be their best. In this two-part episode, we talk with Nate Shaw, who has been the Major League Strength and Conditioning Coordinator for the Arizona Diamondbacks since 2006. His job is to make each pitcher, infielder, and outfielder on the D-backs roster stronger, faster, and more powerful. However, Nate also has an athletic training background and believes that health and durability are just as important as skill. He works simultaneously to improve performance and to bulletproof his athletes against the rigors of a 162-game Major League Baseball season. Lindsay, what's up? How are you doing, Nate? I'm doing really good. How about yourself? I am just peachy. Ooh, part of the country are you in? Where are you peachy at? I am in New Jersey. And it is about, I think it's going up to about 55 degrees today, which is pretty exciting for this this time of year in these here parts. Mm. Where are you? You're in Arizona, right? Yep, for sure. So I imagine it's like, you know, 80 degrees and you know, it, it's crazy. The, the weather out here is, I think one of the neat things about it is the, uh, the weather swings. Like it's the ultimate place to buy a sweatshirt that you're going to lose because in the mornings you for sure have to have extra clothes because it's like 40 degrees colder than what it's going to be. And then, and, and then it swings. I've, I've never lived in a place with daily swings that high, which is pretty cool. It is the desert. They say that about the desert. Ah, it's crazy. <laughs> Are you a golfer? Uh, not a good one. Okay. <laughs> I, mean, I know all my friends that are out in Arizona are playing so much golf this time of year. And yeah, it's, yeah, it's expensive this time of year too. It's really cheap. If you go out there and it's 118, they're like, they're paying, <laughs> they're, like, they're paying you to play. <laughs> <laughs> we played here on uh Saturday at our golf club. We have this thing called the Kris Kringle and everyone plays in a Santa suit. We had right. 206 golfers in Santa wow. suits. It That's was impressive. hysterical. It was really, really funny. So no winter meetings. How did that go? What happened? Was there like a small virtual meeting? Yeah, we, uh, you know, I've been on the, in the PBS CCS now for gosh, 17 seasons and I've been the education kind of chair for a while. And we talking about it, you know, it seemed like it might happen. We weren't sure. So we had, uh, we had the A plan in person and we had the pivot plan. And, you know, as, as like everybody else with COVID, man, you just put together the best thing you can and then be prepared to adjust. And that's kind of what we've been doing for the last two years. So I know we, we ended up pivoting to, uh, we had a great vendor show and, uh, we had an awesome education meeting. So it was, it was pretty cool. We got the, I got the, I, I should say awesome. I, I sent the survey out to see if it was awesome or not, but it, it sure seemed good to me. So but I, <laughs> I haven't got the results got yet. Results back. <laughs> yeah, everyone might think it stunk, but I wouldn't, <laughs> you know, it, it is all about how you interpret the data, Nate. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So you've been with the Diamondbacks for 17 years now, right? Yes. I've been the major league strength and conditioning coordinator. And this is my 17th season going into it. What was your background before that? I was uh, I don't know, a college football fan, I guess. I don't know. I, I worked with the devil race in Tampa for three years. I was a minor league trainer. I, I was, I went to the university of Florida, graduated uh, as an athletic training student or a graduate as an athletic trainer and uh, went to, uh, I just worked in the private sector for a little bit and then got a job with the uh, Rays in 2003. Were you an athlete yourself growing up? Yeah, I was an athlete. I just wasn't a good one. Um, I was, uh, I was played baseball. I actually went into, I played football, love football. 
I was on the weightlifting team because uh, I went out for track and I got beat in the 800 by a girl. And I was like, well, oh, maybe I'm cut out for, huh? <laughs> no, it's true. She, she won state, but you know, I was like, wow, she's fast. I got no chance. So I figured maybe I should go out for weightlifting. So it was a natural progression for me to go into strength and conditioning. You had a weightlifting program at your high school? Yeah. Yeah. That's Actually, pretty cool. That Not a lot of high schools have that. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in Florida. There's a lot of, in Florida, there's a lot of football stuff. And I would say the weightlifting team, there were a lot of football players that were on the weightlifting team. So it's kind of part of the deal down there, which is pretty cool. What were your lifts? If I recall, they were, it was a bench clean. I feel like there was the third one, but I, I remember the competitions were bench and clean for sure. Maybe squats. Well, we, we did a lot of squats, a lot of deadlifts. And then uh, I remember benching in the competition and I remember cleaning in the competition, but I don't remember anything else. It's interesting. We had Mike Boyle on the podcast a few episodes back and he was talking about how difficult it is to teach adults to power clean. Mm. So having learned it early in life, how do you feel about that? Yeah. I mean, if I was trying to be the best power cleaner, I would want to start early. And I think I probably haven't done a a power clean other than a lazy kind of high pull to re-rack a squat rack because in a long time. So I haven't really followed through that. I think for me in like my philosophy for with the diamondbacks, what we try to do, I love Olympic lifts and I think they're awesome, but they're just, it's hard to be able to put the consistency together to get the, the goodie out of what they offer. So we probably trend more towards uh, med balls and different types of power activities versus, you know, actually power cleans. Yeah, so I, I don't do them a lot. That's what we had been talking about with Mike too. Like you can mimic that movement with so many other objects that are not a barbell where it, the skill is not quite as specific and you know, you bring that risk of getting hurt like way down. So it's interesting. So baseball is obviously, it's a pretty unique sport because players are expected to be super strong, super powerful, fast, yada, yada. But there's also a lot of sitting around in baseball. So what are the, some of the unique challenges of training baseball players? That's a great question. I think the start stop pace of the whole thing, like you you mentioned, I think is difficult, but I think inherently they get used to that. I think one of the, the most difficult object or thing to train for, I think is the 162 games, Mm. the, just the longevity and the grind of the season being ready every day. And then maybe your number gets called. Maybe it doesn't. I think that's a a mentality that's difficult for young players to grasp initially. And then, you know, as you get older and become a more veteran player, it it becomes a little bit easier and you can kind of sit into a role a little bit better. But as far as training goes, I think the biggest thing is probably to have them warmed up as much as we can for what they need. And then uh, the old uh, eyewash, let's try not to, not to do as much eyewash, just to do as little eyewash as possible. Yeah. When I first got into baseball, I was like, what is eyewash? What does that even mean? It's like, well, you go out there and you talk to the pitcher or the player or whatever, and you act like you're putting eyewash in their eyes. There's nothing wrong, but you're just telling them to calm down or you're telling them to relax or like, it's literally, it means nothing. And like, Oh, (laughs) Oh, okay. All right. I get that. So we try to, we try to have intent behind everything we do. And I think one of the attributes of a long season person that would do really well is having a personality that's a little bit adjustable. You know, you have to be able to um, connect with different types of people, different parts of the country, different parts of the world and different personalities. And then of course the game itself gives plenty of stimulus to have to adjust to. So 
Sometimes it's a really crappy flight, which we're lucky to be on. We're not a, it's not a crappy bus ride for us. Sometimes the, the spread is bad and that's our spreads are wonderful. Sometimes it's like, oh man, salmon again versus, oh, it's Taco Bell for the 17th day in a row in the minor leagues, you know? So it's all relative and being able to reframe it, I think is probably, I don't know. I think that's a really big skill and be able to focus on the things that you think are important, which in general could be kind of clumped into the positive category. So. 17 years is a, is a while, especially in this business. A lot of times people don't keep jobs for that long, but you also do a lot of the, the, as you mentioned, the education with the baseball trainers associations and training has really evolved over the last 17 years. Sometimes they say baseball is the only thing since the paperclip that hasn't changed, but a lot of things have also changed. So what are the biggest things that have changed since you started, be them philosophies regarding training or things that you used to do that you don't do anymore, things that you do do? What's different? That's a great question. I feel like if it's okay, I'd like to start off with what's the same. Sure. And I think Mm -hmm. the same is your process, the things that you do well. And, you know, I started off, I had some really good mentors along the way. Uh, Kevin Barr was my first major league strength coach mentor with the Rays when I was there. And he had a saying, just like I had another coach named coach Buckner when I was in uh, high school and they're like, just keep it simple, you know, or, or don't, and even Mike Boyle, don't break them. So for me, it was like, let's not do things that are not good for baseball. Let's not do dumb stuff. And some of those things were, you know, overhead exercises and because we don't know what type of a chromium they have. I don't have x-ray vision. We don't know what type of thoracic mobility they have. We don't know if they have all the prerequisite movements for some of these exercises. So for me, it's just, hey, let's just keep it simple. And let's, you know, because there are people that have played baseball that have never lifted a weight and did really well. So it's like, okay, we could really do a lot of good or we could do some damage. And of course, along my way, I've trained people bad, trained athletes the wrong way and gotten results that weren't good. And so if you're continuing to have the right path, which would be don't do anything stupid and have a reason for the things that you do, like I still have that. And it's, it's been really good. I'm surrounded by great teammates. I got an awesome training staff that I work hand in hand with at all times. We work really well. We communicate well with the nutrition, you know, that's kind of new nutrition, mental skills, like those departments have been created along the way, but ultimately the things that are the same are really good communication and have an intent around what you do. So to answer your actual question of like, you know, what's changed, I think I've gotten way better at corrective exercise and prescribing that. I've always been really good at soft tissue, but that's gotten better. Everything that we do has probably gotten a little bit refined in certain areas along the way. And I feel like if you do, you know, in, in, in the, the military, I've never been in the military, but the AAR, like an after action report or the OODA loop, the observe, orient, decide and act or, or detach and act or whatever type of process you have to evaluate your program. I think if you do that and you do it well and you do it honestly, then uh, you kind of sort of have to evolve with the times. When I first got going, force plates were cool things at the science shop. You know, the scientists talk about and I was like, wow, what is that? Right. And then velocity based training was, you know, and then people knew that they liked bar speed, but there was no way to quantify it unless you Mm -hmm. had one of those original units with the out of uh, like the Czech Republic with the rope. It, It was really difficult to quantify a lot of this stuff. And I think over the years, you know, HRV has changed things, recovery, the importance of recovery, like Joel Jameson's conditioning kind of map that he outlined of just 
okay, it's great. Like you have a great attitude and you want to work hard every day and your body won't be able to. So if you can realize that and we can periodize it out or we can lay it out in a week that makes sense by doing two really hard days and two medium days and two light days and even have an off day, like maybe what this guy needs is an actual off day. And just evolving the thought process, I think is probably the biggest thing that has changed. And the systems are still the same, but the pieces within the system probably are, are more convicted than ever before. That makes yep. sense. I have like 82 questions off of what you just said, but I want to go. So you went to school to be an athletic trainer, right? And then you later went on to get your strength and conditioning stuff, right? So you mentioned corrective exercise is super important to you and that you've always been good at soft tissue. How much did your athletic training background help you with that kind of stuff and corrective exercises, just for folks who don't know, like we all have crappy movement patterns that we've developed over the years. And what he's talking about is identifying your crappy movement patterns and making them better. May not be perfect, but they can always improve. Anyway, how much did the athletic training background help you with all of that? Yeah, man, that's a, that's a million dollar question right there. That's a really good one. I think the thing that sticks out the most to me, is like when I was in school for learning to be an athletic trainer. Uh, so I mean, I was lifting weights and I was, I was a football player in high school and baseball player in high school and on the weightlifting team. So I was physically active. I like to run. I like to do the, I wasn't great at anything. I was always the guy that was in the right spot though, and understood my position and my role. And, and uh, it's like having that background in athletic training. And even while I was getting that background in athletic training is probably the single most important tool that has helped me evolve and and stay on the cutting edge of what we do. I think weightlifting and and rehab are the same thing. It's just different ends of the spectrum, right? Like it's the same train. We're just trying to, we're trying to maximize gains. And sometimes maximizing a gain is getting a a full contraction of the VMO after a knee surgery, right? That's a rehab thing for sure. But what's the difference between trying to get that and a heavy squat? It's just further down the road of progression. So once I figured that out, I was like, wow, man, this is the same. And I think what I learned in on myself and on my friends while I was learning about athletic training and injury rehab was like, well, you can't, if you do dumb stuff, you're going to get hurt. If you do stuff that doesn't make sense, if you do exercises that are maybe risky or that you don't know how to do, or you have bad technique on, you're going to get hurt more often than not. And so I kind of always had those like uh, the kind of analogy I always use is like injury prevention sunglasses. Like I always, like I see the world through like, that's going to cause an injury that I don't know, is that best for what we're doing? And, you know, so for me, I think it's probably the, the biggest gift that I ever received was the athletic training education to look at stuff. So there's a lot of like, when you see people do dumb stuff, like we talk a lot about how like, do not try to copy everything you see on Instagram. Like there's dumb stuff that will hurt you, but we see a lot in baseball lately. At least what I think is happening is that guys have gotten so big and strong and powerful with the deadlifts and the squats and their quads and stuff are huge. And they can generate so much power off the ground that when they rotate through a swing, sometimes their tiny little oblique can't handle all the power that they've generated. And the thing explodes. We've got all these oblique injuries and hamstring injuries and lat injuries. You're starting to see all these small muscle problems that seem to be kind of a result of doing the other exercises really well. So what do you do about that? Another good question. (laughs) Uh, I feel like I don't, uh, you know, I'm clearly not qualified to 
have the right answer or, you know, this is my opinion, right? No, yeah, of course. There, yeah. there are other people out there. Well, you're have... definitely qualified. You've been doing this for 17 years. <laughs> well, okay. Let's put it this way. The only thing that makes me qualified is the amount of mistakes that I've made along the way. You know what I mean? Like best way the, to learn the thing that I see that's important is, is, is balance. Right. And you, know, you can break it up into different categories, big muscles and small muscles. Or I think what I've kind of morphed into more of lately is like, okay, what position are the bones in? And what position, like if somebody's standing and they look like they're in extension, like in their hips are anteriorly rotated and their, their ribs are in an extended position, like, okay, was that person going to be able to rotate really well or not? And in our world, it's not a collision sport, right? And everybody has to throw, right? Except for maybe the DH, but he has to swing. So it's like, we need rotation and our game lives in the transverse plane. So to prepare an athlete only to be strong in the sagittal plane or the frontal plane to me is, is maybe a programming error, maybe something that maybe, maybe gets missed a little bit. And, you know, I don't know, I can't speak to other people's experiences or what other teams have done over the years, but historically we've done okay with our thought process of trying to create balance in an athlete. And I think, I think that's hard to defend. You know, like you can say, oh, speed is important. And it's like, well, duh, like, yeah, you know, strength is important. Absolutely. And then so is health, right? So, okay. If there's some things that we see that lead to injuries or things that a lot of people that get injured have, like if there's some numbers or some metrics that we can look at, like if you have a bunch of hamstring tears and your anterior pelvic tilt on average across an organization is 18 and the norm is eight to 12, then maybe that's something to look at. Right. And it's kind of some of the things that we've done. We look at how guys are injured and the trends that we see in those injuries and then try to extrapolate it back to, Hey, can we put them in a better position? Can we make them more balanced? Can we, what can we do to make them a little bit more bulletproof from 360 degrees instead of, you know, just being strong. Cause I, look, if baseball was about being strong, I could have been a great baseball player. Cause I was mm-hmm. strong, you know, cause like the things that we like about training, right. All the reason we're, we're here is because we can control the variables, right? Like if I want to get strong at that, the intervention is simple. I do that or things that will do help with that. Right. And so I can get really strong. Like there are people that are way stronger than I ever was, but I used to be able to bench 385 pounds. And when I benched 385, that was really strong for me. And when I threw a baseball, it was it didn't look like anything that any baseball player would do. Right. <laughs> so it's like, you got this continuum of, okay, strength, and then maybe usable strength or practicality, or how does all that play together? And, you know, I think if there's a, maybe a nuance, maybe that's the art and the science of, of, of taking the, the variables that are important and strength is one mobility. Maybe, I don't know if there's a way to quantify that, but if we look at ranges of motion in the rehab world, there's some numbers there that are, that are objectifiable and make sense. So you kind of use those, those glasses that I talked about earlier and look into both worlds and be like, okay, broken cats have that. And these healthy cats have that, but they're not broken yet. Like maybe we can, maybe we can bridge that gap a little bit. And I think that's what I try to do. That, it's that, I don't funny. Know if that was a good answer. Absolutely. When I was in, when I was in college, so I walked onto the softball team at university of North Carolina and I had never really, I was always super fit. My mother lifted weights, but I had never been on like a weightlifting program. Right. So I roll up, I'm a 17 year old freshman. I was very young for my grade. My mom started me early cause she couldn't afford a babysitter, but uh, so they get me on this lifting program and I'm all of a sudden bench pressing. And, and right. I was 125 pounds as a freshman in college. And my goal 
I was supposed to be able to bench 155. And I was like, are you insane? And just the training for trying to get to that within the first like month or so of school, I could hit home plate on one bounce from the outfield fence when I got there. And after a month of trying to hit that bench press, I was digging everything in at second base. And I'm like, how am I a good baseball player if I can't even touch the top of my head anymore? And obviously that stuff isn't really happening as much, but it just definitely shows you how far things have come in 20 years. They have, but it's still happening. Like that's the, that's one of the things that I was fortunate enough to present to USA baseball at one of their regional clinics uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it's a constant message. I have an 11 year old boy and you can make a difference in youth sports because there's a lot of misinformation out there. Like you figured it out. You're smart, right? Like the good news is you're like, well, why am I not as good? But there are other people that feel good, right? Totally. But there are other people that say, you know what, gosh, I'm not good enough to do this and do that. I got to work harder. And it's like, man, maybe, maybe that's not the right direction. In some cases it, it probably is. And other things like, let's just do the right things for the sport and the movement patterns. And let's just treat these humans like humans and watch them move and and give them what they need versus trying to turn them into bench pressing squat deadlifting machines that end up having Tommy John or can't play. You mentioned before, so you're talking about balance and you're talking about how baseball is so much in the transverse plane. Now the entire rest of the world, when they lift weights, everybody's front and back, like they're all sagittal, right? And they're all trying to do rotational stuff because Joe Blow goes outside and tries to swing his suitcase into his trunk. And it's the first rotational thing he's done in ages and he hurts himself, right? So we're all always trying to get more rotational. Baseball players are rotation, 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 but it's only one side. So how do you balance out all of your guys who are throwing and hitting on the right side, 7 million reps a day and not doing squat with the left. And, you know, obviously you can do the corrective exercises, but the reps will never even out. Yeah. You bring up a good point. And I don't know that I have a good answer. It's been 18, 17 seasons, 18 off seasons. This one's a crazy one because of the lockout, but like I've never made the programming part of like addressing that imbalance of rotation. I just never have. And a part of me is because it's a skill to rotate that way and to hit it's a skill. So some offset rotation, I can't argue that that's a good idea. I don't have any practical data in my mind, anecdotal or that, Hey, by rotating 300 times, 30 sets of 10 med balls to the offhand is beneficial. Like I, I don't have anything that I've done over the years. I think what I would probably answer with would be, I try to keep the body in balance with itself. Mm -hmm. So I look more at hips in relation to rib cage, the ability to rotate internal and external rotation of the, of the actual hip joint, the shoulder joint. And if all those things are okay, then I feel like they're okay to go play. And I don't know that that's the right answer. That's just the way that I've kind of looked at it. The one thing that I definitely do think about when programming is uh in general we'll lift something heavy which is probably like like a typical leg workout would be we'll lift something heavy whatever it is dealer's choice i would tend towards some type of squat some type of maybe a trap bar deadlift or you know a pistol squat or whatever it is and then we're going to go something sideways in the frontal plane and then we're going to do we're going to do some hamstrings and we're going to do probably two sets of hamstrings in upper body i always make sure that we do at least 
three to two pulls to pushes. So I sort of address that, but not in the transverse plane. And, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's something to look into. I just, over the years, we've just never really found that to be a difference maker and all the players that have come through that, you know, felt really strongly about it. And they're like, okay, I'm going to do this. Okay, great. Let's do it. And there hasn't been anything to me that I've seen. So it's a bad answer for me. Well, not really, because if you are addressing the hips and the rib cage and the shoulders and that rotation all on the one side is not affecting that, then yeah. it's not an issue. I totally get it. I do want to ask, cause I love pistol squats and people mm. think I'm crazy. Mm. That's such a mobility thing. How many of your guys can do those? I don't know. It's like training wheels, right? Like, I mean, how many people can ride a bike really well? Right. So <laughs> what we do is, is, is we do that. So I guess you could just call a, a pistol squat for me would be, cause I, I like to look at the hips and how they're kind of what the spine is doing. And so for me, a pistol squat is a single leg squat, right? Where your butt goes backwards and you can go down onto a bench. You can go all the way down if you can. If you, and if you, if you're really good, you can stand on top of a bench and go all the way down and then come all the way back up. And I think that's what all the cool kids do. Right. But I don't think our baseball players are that good. And what we'll do is we'll chop the range of motion down and load it up. Like for me, this is kind of like this, I don't know what's the word. It's continuum, right? Like, okay, I want to be strong as I can be. Right. And I also want to have some motion and they don't have to exist in the same exercise. So for me, I'll do something heavy with some squats or something like that. And then I'll do some type of mobility exercise or something like that, that swings the pendulum back to, okay, we need range of motion. We need functional stability in our foot. We need balance. We need athleticism. And we just, it's kind of like post-activation potentiation, right? Like we're going to do something heavy and then we're going to do something athletic or we're going to do something heavy and then we're going to do something that requires mobility so that we don't lose motion and we don't miss out on getting strength. But it doesn't have to be 315 on your back all the way down frog squat to get strong for baseball. Like I think that's probably a recipe for an orthopedic surgery, which is great if you're an orthopedic surgeon, you know what I mean? It's all perspective, right? Yeah, right. We've so much come to understand the importance of individual training for people because not everything works for everyone. How do you go about creating these programs for each individual athlete, especially when you have guys who do such different thing, pitchers, infielders, outfielders, catchers? Yeah, you're good at asking questions. They say great leaders (laughs) ask great questions. So I think you're well on your way. The thing that sticks out to me in that is that there's umbrellas, right? Or, or buckets or categories or whatever menus of options. Like you can get the salad or you can get the steak or you can get the chicken. And so for me, some of the menu items that we like to use are, I would say if it was a term, I would say functional, right? Like a functional menu of items, right? So split stance for sure. Sideways lunges, single leg exercises. I think there aren't too many people that single leg exercises aren't good for, you know? And I think there are some people that double leg squats at two degrees per second are good for, I I don't know who they are, but not a lot of (laughs) baseball players. Right. So there's a lot of commonalities. And then, and then what you do is you look at the movement patterns and you kind of tease or shift or persuade the things that you're looking for out of the movement. I think too, you know, one of the things I'm super fortunate about is over the years, we created a continuing education budget and, you know, that budget it's gone up over the years and COVID it's gone down and uh, but, but whatever, man, like over the years, if I go back and just use an old simple abacus, I spent like 50 grand on continuing education over the, over my career and having content and knowing what you're looking for 
help so much with buy-in from the athletes. Like if you just really have an idea of what's important and it actually is important and you can influence or intervene or, you know, the, the interventions that you pick or, you know, whatever model you want to use. Like if you're just doing things that are going in the direction that you want to go, you're way more successful. So I would say a lot of guys do rear foot elevated. A lot of guys do pistol squats. You got to have hamstrings, right? You got to have eccentric hamstrings. So, you know, there's a couple of little categories that you have to tickle all the time, but it's not a a world of like, it's a world of choices and uh, check downs, if you will. And as long as we're tickling all the boxes that we need to tickle on a regular basis, then we're right where we need to be. And I know that's like not a direct answer, but it kind of matters and lets us have the flexibility to do what individuals need to do. So I ask every athlete who comes on this podcast, what is the exercise that they love to hate? Mm. And every single one, hockey players, skier, baseball player, football player has said rear foot elevated split (laughs) squat. They love, they hate to do it, but they do it because it's good for them. But they're, they're the athletes. They don't have the knowledge that you do explain why the rear foot elevated split squat is so good for athletes across all sports? <laughs> well, I think it has a lot of good attributes. I think, mm-hmm. I guess, start this whole thing off with, would I rather have somebody that could squat 600 pounds or somebody that could rear foot elevated lunge 120 pounds, you know, or half that weight or a quarter of that yeah. weight. Like I would take the uh, rear foot elevated player anytime just because they're going to be more athletic. They got better control. I think you can get into better ranges of motion with that exercise. You can get lower. It also with your foot back, I feel like you can understand the difference between your heel and your toe and whether you're everted or supinated or inverted and pronated or, you know, you start to understand how your foot actually interacts with the ground because you kind of sort of have like a crutch back there. You have something, it's a single leg activity with the kickstand. And I think that that helps. And then, you know, the deeper range of motion, I, I like it a lot better. I, I would argue though, I don't necessarily have the splits, the rear foot elevated split squat as my number one. I would probably put it in maybe the one a one B I like the, uh, the pistol squat a little bit better because of the position of the spinal erectors, right? Mm-hmm. If you're, if you're doing the rear foot elevator, right, you're still arching your back. And I feel like we do that really well as in general. So for me, I like the deflection part of the spine. So I would say most people are really good at extending. And so if we're going to slightly nuance a program for a player, if they're really good at extension, then let's let them get good at extension or flexion also. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So I would put them in a pistol squat. If they can do a rear, an RFE really well, awesome. Like, eh, golf clap. Mm-hmm. Now let's do something you're not good at and do a pistol squat. Which Because yeah, well. you can still learn the same things, but there's no kickstand. Nobody likes to train the stuff that they're not good at. Come on. <laughs> This concludes part one of our conversation with Nate Shaw. Be sure to check out part two and follow Nate on Instagram and Twitter at at N8Shaw1. You can also follow the Arizona Diamondbacks on both Instagram and Twitter at at DBacks. Until next time, for more information on Food of the Gods or to download other episodes, visit us at foodofthegodspodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at at foodofthegodspod or email us at foodofthegodspodcast at gmail.com. Food of the Gods is a Digitant Podcast production.